When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back to the Silver Fortune Podcast. So it's been a while since I did sort of a standalone episode. Uh, I've had a pair of interviews in the past two weeks, which I encourage each of you to to check out if you haven't seen them already. One with Paul Eberhardt of of Silver Doctors and another one last week with Steve Penny of the Silver Chartist. Both excellent interviews and up on my YouTube channel or on my podcast page and and both give you a, you know, together, I think, over two hours of, of content. I've also been working a lot on short-form content, um, shorts, essentially, uh, YouTube shorts, and, and I've been sharing them on other platforms as well. Um, but but just something I'm trying to do to sort of, you know, crack this YouTube algorithm, which sort of has me pegged as just, uh, you know, not not a channel that's going to grow, regardless of what I put out or how much content I put out. I've been getting pretty much consistently the same results. And so, you know, What's that old saying? Insanity is trying the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So I'm trying something different, right? Um, with that being said, uh, sort of going back to my normal content today for, for I, I guess you'd call it a change in pace now. Um, and, and I want to talk first off about uh, this topic of silver. The idea that silver is is scarce, which is true, but that silver, that we're going to run out of silver, silver supply. And many have said this, and oftentimes it's based on statistics or numbers that are put out by organizations such as, you know, one in the past I've seen pretty commonly, the, the USGS, the U- United States Geological Survey, basically stating that the world has X amount of silver left uh, based on current reserves. And people interpret that basically as saying that the, the world is going to run out of silver, that, that silver is basically going to become extinct by the year you know, 2040, for example. And then at that point, um, we're, we're going to find a, a different way or it's become like, super expensive or we're just going to have to recycle all the silver that, that we've already used in various products and devices. And, 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 and generally it's, it's the premise between, behind a, a significant move upwards in the price of silver. Now I want to sort of dispel that today. With that being said, I'm bullish on silver and, and part of it is on the basis of supply. The, the uh, quality of silver ores in terms of, you know, grams per ton continues to drop, right? Mines are not as good as they have been in the past. And part of that is because, well, you know, there's only so many good silver mines and so many good places that we have access to in the world to mine silver. Part of it's the fact that uh, the the investment in the, you know, silver mining, the exploration and whatnot has, has really dwindled in the last, you know, eight years as a whole it sort of cast a broad stroke over the the sector it dwindled pretty significantly and and has led to a pretty significant um fallen ore grades however the world is not going to run out of silver uh if we look at the, the usgs uh this is from i think the, their 2020 mineral commodity summaries and this is specifically for silver they note that worldwide between uh the u.s argentina australia bolivia chile uh, China, Mexico, Peru, Poland, Russia, and other countries, the world has an estimated, and this is rounded, 
560,000 metric tons of silver. That translates to roughly 18 billion ounces. And if we look at, you know, the most recent World Silver Survey uh, for 2021, which estimates uh, mining production to be around 850 million ounces, uh, troy ounces a year, you know, that, that works out to be a little over 21 years worth of production. Essentially, and that's not the, the intent of this paper by the USGS, by the way, but insinuating, some would insinuate that that means we're going to run out of silver in about 20 years, 21 years from now. And that's not the case. Silver's not going to become an extinct metal. Um, the, the cure to supply deficits, which to some extent we're already facing in silver, is going to be higher prices because with higher prices, you have a greater incentive to go for lower grade ore. You have a greater incentive to explore um, for, for other areas to mine silver. You have a greater incentive for for zinc and, and, and tin and gold and lead miners and copper miners. Um, I don't know how much tin miners source, but, but for sure zinc, lead, copper, and, and gold miners source a lot of silver as a byproduct. And you're going to have a greater incentive for them to, to, to extract that silver as a byproduct. And you're going to have a greater incentive to recycle silver, uh, and, and bring it onto the market for investors and for industrial uses, whether that is melting down bars and coins or getting silver out of, of, you know, electric devices and buildings and vehicles and whatnot that are at the end of their, you know, life. Um, oftentimes it's, it's been said before, and it's true that the vast majority amount of silver that has been mined is lost and not forever, but, but a lot of it's lost. It's, it's in a landfill, right? And at current prices, 20 some bucks an ounce, there's just not a financial incentive to go after that silver. But with the supply shortage comes higher prices. And the fix for that supply shortage is going to be higher prices. It's like when people talk about, oh, well, gold's a bad investment because one day we're going to be able to mine um, asteroids, right? And of course, the answer to that is, well, you know, if, if, if we're spending so much money that we're mining asteroids for gold or platinum or palladium or rare earth metals, I, I don't think they'd be called rare earth metals anymore, would they? I don't know. Or, or silver, then we're talking about a really high price because asteroid mining is, is, I mean, we're, will it ever be cheap? I mean, it's a long ways away from ever being cheap because the amount of um, energy that would be needed to actually do something like that. Right. And the same is true for, for all this talk about we're going to run out of silver. This isn't me being bearish. It's simply saying that I expect higher prices and I think higher prices are going to fix that supply problem eventually, but probably not in the low twenties. We're talking much, much higher than it is right now. Um, another thing I want to move on to here is, is a bit of a more current event topic. And that's, um, the Fed, you know, the, the recent talk out of the Fed has been to, you know, continue on this path of tightening. They, they continue to plan on, on tightening their or tapering their quantitative easing. They, they still expect to, to be wrapping that up by the end of this quarter, which is crazy. That's a really fast pace. Um, somebody had shared a figure just recently within the last week that shows that they, you know, maybe aren't actually sticking to that, that they're not tapering quite as fast as we'd expect, but who knows? Maybe that's just a, an anomaly and, and they'll be done with it before we know it. Uh, QE never to be seen again, right? No, <laughs> but in all likelihood, we'll see it, uh, again in, in, in the near future. But they're still in path to, to, to wrap that up by the end of March, I believe, or April. Uh, 
they're also expected to continue with their rate hikes. In fact, uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, Zero Hedge was reporting on this, that they're still expecting rate hikes, actually, um, as many as four rate hikes uh, by the end of this year, by the end of 2022, um, another three next year, and that by 20, mid-2024, or by Q3 of 2024, uh, the Fed will have raised rates 10 times, and the Fed funds rate will be at 2.5%, despite the fact that uh, the amount of debt in today's economy is is you know higher than ever, and despite the fact that that the Fed um, was not able to get very far in their tightening, you know, prior to prior to COVID, which by the way that tightening cycle had ended by the time COVID came around, that gets lost in in sort of the whole people get caught up in COVID and the economic related disruptions of that and all the easing Fed did, but but their tightening cycle was over come you know, the beginning of 2020, uh, they weren't able to make it very far. And I don't think they'll be able to make it very far in this tightening cycle either. And yet it's something I'm still waiting for, for them to really turn tail on this. And I think, you know, part of me wonders, and I've, I've brought this up many times in the past, is the Fed really looking to tighten faster, at a faster pace than they know the markets or the economies will be able to tolerate in hopes that they'll be able to pivot to, to easing sooner I, I i don't know the reason behind it is maybe sometimes conspiratorial because they, you know because they want to uh, keep uh, easy monetary policy for political reasons or because the you know the top one percent oftentimes benefit the most from that uh, because the markets benefit the most from that uh, maybe it's simply because you know managing the federal reserve is a heck of a lot easier and people are demanding stimulus demanding for you to roll back rates and and you have you know, a uh, 20% decline in the stock market here or a potential housing crisis there or rising government debt over there as a reason to do that versus, you know, right now when they look at the data and they say, well, you know, inflation 6.8% for, for November, CPI has been pretty high for like a year now. We should probably get on this tightening train. Well, hey, if you have all those other things going on, like a market crash, housing market problems, government debt on the rise, etc., a lot easier to just say, well, fine, we'll, you know, we'll cut rates. We'll, we'll start up the QE printing press again. A lot easier to do that in that, you know, circumstance. And, and I wonder if that's almost what they're going for at times. Uh, because I don't think they're going to make it through the end of the year with, with, without a significant price decline. We, we can talk, and I talked all about this in, in one of my recent interviews, probably both my recent interviews with, with both Paul and Steve. But, but if you have, um, if you have a market that seems to be driven by narrative, that's one thing, right? Right now, for example, the precious metals market is driven by narrative that the Fed is going to, Continue on this tightening path, you have a stronger dollar, lower inflation, etc. Right? Even though none of that has happened, the metals are pricing it in, as are many other markets, and it's all based on a narrative, what's happening in the silver market. This narrative that the Fed has things under control. It's when that narrative shifts that you see, you know, silver and gold really take off and, and move up through some significant resistance and kind of resume this bull market or or start a new one, whatever you want to kind of term it. However, what the Fed is doing right now in terms of raising rates eventually and, and tapering right now, that's not just a matter of narrative. That's a matter of market mechanics. That's a matter of liquidity, of credit growth. When you when you cut off credit growth or you slow credit growth, 
when you start to remove liquidity from a system that's dependent on that liquidity, it doesn't matter what the narrative is, the market comes down. The economy suffers because of that. The economy that is, you know, addicted to the stimulus is going to suffer as that stimulus is pulled away. And it's not just a matter of narrative. It's a matter of mechanics. It's a matter of math. It's a matter of, of you know, um, supply and demand in some cases, right? You look at the massive amount of treasuries that the U.S. government is issuing to, to feed this, you know, ever-growing debt. And when the Fed is no longer buying, you know, whatever their, their amount was per month, I forget the exact number, and eventually it's going to be none, they're just going to be rolling over what's already in their portfolio, then that's that's just a matter of mechanics. That's not even a matter of narrative. Narrative um, eventually will catch up with those mechanics and, and everyone will throw up their arms and say, well, come on, like we can't, what did you think would happen, Jerome? What did you think would happen if, if you started raising rates and tapering? we're going to get the result that that many, including myself, are expecting a market crash, and then the Fed will come in and sort of save the day. But but you can't avoid that. You can't avoid the mechanics. Never mind how long the narrative persists, you can't avoid the mechanics of and, and the consequences of removing this liquidity or this credit growth or this stimulus from, from the markets. This year, I mean, 2022, I, I, I expect the end of the tightening cycle to to, to end this year. And I think the next, you know, um, the next easing cycle is, is likely to start this year. You know, another thing I wanted to talk about real quick, um, before we wrap things up for the day is, is Kazakhstan. Now, Kazakhstan has been in the news a lot lately. And, and more recently, uh, their, their president, you know, following their recent, uh, protests, often which, had turned into to very violent protests. Um, th- th- their president, uh, Kasim Jomar Takayev, uh, essentially said that, you know, he's, he's, he's victorious, right? That there was an a- attempted coup d'etat, uh, and, and that the unrest and whatnot, the violence was really centered around that. Now, this was concerning for a lot of people, um, for, for people that are invested in uranium. This was maybe a, a major bull case because Kazakhstan produces almost 50%, I think 46% of the world's, um, uranium supply. Uh, and, and, you know, if their country were to go the way of, of Syria or something like that, then that would be huge for uranium. Um, Others pointed to this, and and we're we're seriously questioning, you know, what what type of connections does this have to uh, the West, to the United States, and and you know, is it a coincidence that something like this is happening at the same time that Ukraine is is such a you know pressure point for both NATO and and Russia, and and I think as as often is the case, the, the truth is somewhere in between, and what I mean by that is I think that a lot of these protests, this violence, this unrest, which by the way, I don't think is, is over. Um, oftentimes these things do happen and, and government sort of, uh, uh, they, they tend to consolidate power. Uh, Turkey would be a good example. Although that coup back in, I think 2017 was, was under much more tenuous circumstances and, and was not as severe as this apparent coup attempt that that one stopped, um, in less than 24 hours in Turkey's case. Uh, this one in Kazakhstan, I think there will be residual effects and a lot of dissent in the future. I, I think, you know, a lot of the things that they're complaining about, the, the dissent and the displeasure with the, you know, one-party government and whatnot, legitimate concerns, legitimate concerns, just like what you see sometimes in, you know, like like the whole Arab Spring. Or, or let's take, for example, Syria. I want to compare it to Syria. Syria and their civil war 
those that were fighting against the Assad government, they had valid concerns, valid reasons, I guess, to, to, to start that civil war. Where it gets tricky is when you have, you know, in the case of Syria, you have a Western government helping to prop up that opposition. And, and then you have, you know, eventually you have the Russian government or, or probably from the onset, the, the Iranian government helping to prop up the regime. That's where the waters get a little muddy. And so, of course, people are going to say on both sides, they're going to say, well, Russia wanted this so that they could consolidate power in Kazakhstan, right? Just like Russia wanted what happened in Syria, where they stepped in because they wanted to consolidate power or, or have some military bases or what have you in, in the Middle East, right? And on the other side of the spectrum, you're going to have a lot of people saying, this was the United States in the West that was fomenting revolt and, and maybe even, you know, helping out. There's a lot of talk of, of foreign operatives in the country that had been arrested or, or killed in, in Kazakhstan that the U.S. or CIA or whoever are, are fomenting revolt, just like what we definitely did with Syria and with ISIS, by the way. Let's not forget that, that, that ISIS was, um, in many ways, uh, assisted by the U.S. government early on. Um, and so I think the, both of those things can be true. I think it can be true that, that Russia has a hand in this, the U.S. and the West have a hand in this, and that the uh, people protesting or revolting have valid reasons to do so, right? I think all three of those things can be true, but the end result is something that we'll have to continue to watch because this is going to have implications on geopolitics um, in Ukraine, uh, between the U.S. and, and Russia, um, you know, even China's big player in this. China is looking to have to source a ton of of uranium in in the next couple decades. A lot of which they probably plan to to get from Kazakhstan and from their major uh, uranium producer, uh, Kazataprom. And and so you know that's that's coming. And uh, you know, it, 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 does Russia and, and China have a hand in this, or or how will they? sort of broker their own military power as, as Russia already has and sort of quelling this uprising, um, using some of their military assets to, to assist in, in, you know, stabilization of, of society and whatnot in Kazakhstan. How do those things relate to each other? Right. Um, and I think it's a big news item, right? In Kazakhstan, a bit of an obscure country, except maybe to like uranium producers and whatnot, you know, uh, in the whole scheme of things, I think a lot of people say that geopolitically, Ukraine is much, much more important than Kazakhstan. But when you look at, you know, landmass, Kazakhstan's a huge country too. And and when you look at uranium production, which is huge for, for the West and for for Russia and for China because of their nuclear power. I'm, I'm not talking bombs. I'm, I'm talking power plants here. It's huge to secure that supply, right? For all the talk about how, oh, the U.S. or Russia or whatever, it went to the Middle East because of their oil. Well, you know, uranium is a huge amount of modern day um, energy production, regardless of these short term trends like Germany, you know, shutting down their power plants in the middle of of a energy squeeze. Regardless of that stuff, you know, the EU as a whole is looking to commit billions and billions to to nuclear power production. The U.S. is moving in that direction. China is maybe, you know, not maybe, definitely uh, head and shoulders above the West in that regard. Um, they, they are building a ton of power uh, reactors as it is right now and, and intend to plant like a ton more in the next like decade, decade and a half. 
uranium's a huge part of that and 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 thus Kazakhstan's a huge part of that as well as always though you know a lot to cover today between silver and and the fed and and you know central asia but but as always i'd like to thank each and every one of you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in to today's podcast and god bless